Cool. All right. Hey, uh, welcome to Red River Podcast. I think this is like number 95. Yeah. Um, you know, we we do love to talk our action movies and pop culture. And today we we get a chance to talk to someone who I kind of feel is like a kindred spirit to what we do. Um, you just decided to do it in a book format. So uh, Austin Trinick. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So um, just explain. So so you're someone I, I don't know your background, but you decided to, you know, write a book called the Canon Film Guide uh, from 1980 to 84. So those 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 are the movies that you picked. And then from there, the new book that you have coming out tackles 85 to 87. Um, and, and I'm just kind of curious, like, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure we're all kind of like the same age. So like, what was like the 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 idea that sparked in your brain that you're like I need to do this? Well, these are a lot of the movies I grew up in the video store era, and every Friday night was I would go to the shop with my dad, and we'd rent a stack of movies, and we'd come home with them, and that was that was our entertainment for the weekend. You had to choose it right there in that little stop inside the shop, and yeah. So years and years later, I mean little older, I could rent those movies on my own. And I sort of fell in love with the Ninja, the Ninja films and a lot of the Chuck Norris movies, um, odds and ends, but it didn't really grasp in my head. I, I recognized the Canon logo, but it wasn't until a long time later that I realized this same company made a lot of these very fast, cheap action movies that I happened to grow up on. And so, yeah, I went as an adult, I began writing about film. That's what I went to school for. Um, and I wanted a project that I could work on on my own that was just sort of a long form project besides all the freelancing I'd done for various outlets. And my brain kept coming back to Canon. Canon, the, by this time, the Blu-rays were starting and you would get commentaries and things like that. There was a great Sam Furstenberg commentary track on uh, Revenge of the Ninja and Avenging Force and things like that. And it's like, you hear these stories and it's, you just wanna, you wanna learn more about it because the stories behind these movies are, sometimes crazier than the the films themselves believe it or not and yeah, that's that's I, where it began yeah for sure uh, especially like movies like this because we had sam on i remember I, I told you i was like oh mm. you know via twitter i was like man I, I can't believe sam said yes and you were like sam is really cool if he says he's gonna do it he's gonna do it and he did he was just <laughs> like no ego he's like yeah whatever man let's talk um, and it's, it's basically from that, you know, I, I always like to say Roger Corman world where it's like, you have a certain amount of money and these guys figure it out, you know? And, uh, I, I was just mentioning to Brian, that's Brian, by the way, I'm Sam. Um, and I was mentioning to him, you know, like the appeal of it, you know, cause I'm 43 and I just watched the suicide squad. Okay. So I'm watching this movie. I love James Gunn. It's not. I don't really give a fuck about like comic. I don't. I don't know what the source material is of that, but it was fun. I love Slither, so I I watch it. And mm. but to me, these movies seem like it looks like a video game. It just looks mm. like a video game, and I get it. That's just what it is now, and people aren't going to do sets and and stunt doubles and all that other shit. But that was my detachment from like the action genre. Um, are you still in tune with the action action genre, or or do movies like that? have no appeal to you uh to, to a degree um i mean I, I enjoy john wick and things like that i think there are still good action movies being made but i do miss that sort of i i think what you're saying is like everything on camera what you're seeing is what's actually happening back in the the canon days yeah it was 
it was stuntmen, stunt doubles, and uh, sometimes the stars. Chuck Norris did a lot of these stunts, and Shokasugi especially. There's so many films he almost seriously injured himself on during during these stunts in these films. And yeah, that's that's something that that stopped. Even even you look at Canon and probably their most special effects heavy movie, Life Force. That was still at an era where there wasn't it wasn't computers. They when the zombie lady sits up in the in the movie, you've got it's 23 puppeteers and three computers running this thing. That is the most advanced animatronics they ever did. Because yeah, shortly after that, it all it was all computers, Jurassic Park and things like that. And you you know you lose you lose something there by not having everything happening yeah, no, right sure, on camera. Sure. And I, and I've I always made the comparison. It's always like, especially for our generation, that the, these films are a little bit like comfort food, you know? And uh, I always said like the effects, it's, it's, it's always like the, the, when people compare like the warmth of an analog vinyl record sound versus a digital mm-hmm. CD, or even like you mentioned before, going with your father to the video store and getting that versus now you can stream it. There's benefits and there's, detractions from yeah, we, things, we love but, all that yeah. stuff i mean and now like what we talk we, we always talk about Tubi, Tubi tv and like all these yeah. places a lot of canon on Tubi. a lot of TV, <laughs> yeah so you could like you know get it and we wonder like what it's like for like a 12 or 13 year old to to watch that because the way we remember it is very nostalgic and you know like i could watch i could watch like a bronson movie like the evil that men do which is like pretty brutal sure. you know but like to me like the way I watched it back then as a kid, I guess I was the audience for it. And now as an adult, like I appreciated like on a different level and stuff. So and funny enough to mention the name of our podcast, Red River Podcast, we took from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. Oh, great. So that, <laughs> because that was like the, you know, the the radio station and stuff. So yeah, but, that's cool. That's really cool. So for this book, the, the one you have coming out, do you have a I know you set your uh, a, a release date or or just something yeah, I'm really hoping for to get it out by the end of the year. At this point, I'm just assembling everything, getting all the images scanned and put it together. I have posters and lobby cards and boxes and boxes of that stuff. That that's the, the tedious stuff, editing, and it's just gonna it's gonna come down, I think, to production. It's this this book is much larger than the first one. Um, it's probably gonna be somewhere around a thousand pages. Wow, it's, I was gonna say the first one's pretty big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this this one is significantly larger by almost you know one and a half times the size just and the, the format of the book you're you're taking each film and rem- I, I noticed like i was reading some uh mike Mc, the late great mike mcpadden gave you uh compliments and i have i have his um the teen the the teen book the teen movie book and i and the um the heavy metal ones it's like that you breaking down each of their films what the a viewer could expect from them like that kind of format yeah mike mike was actually a huge inspiration uh this I, I really started on this project right when heavy metal movies came out because i wasn't sure if there was a space for uh, cult film books when we have imdb mm-hmm. and everything now that people can just go and look stuff up is anybody still going to want a book and then heavy metal movies landed on my doorstop and yeah i, I was like okay this is this is great this this guy is doing exactly this sort of thing mm-hmm. i would like to do so yeah he was i gosh yeah, it's so sad. He's he's no longer with it's, us. It's crazy, it's right? I we wanted to get him on, and I know he started doing a podcast, and uh, I knew that he worked on the Gilbert podcast. I'm like, this dude is like, he was one of us. <laughs> so when it happened, I was like, how did 
All right, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. Um, I know he covered. Did did he cover Hard Rock Zombies? Like we had no um, idea that was in, a canon film. I think that was in in that book, but Heavy yeah, that's movies. that's one of my all time favorite, <laughs> like ridiculous movies. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you talk over the top, I mean the the metalhead stuff. It's got it's got some midgets in there. Hitler makes an appearance. <laughs> I mean, they just threw everything out in that film. I love it. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you cover that? In, in 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 the upcoming book i can't remember what year that came out. yeah i actually so i had to draw a very hard line it was tough because canon's catalog is humongous there's mm-hmm. um even at, at, i think i have the 1985 catalog just has all of the movies that they own and they're trying to sell the rights to all these different countries and there's more than 400 films in there wow which is so i i've i've taken it down and only gone with the golden globus productions because okay. They had so many pickups. So unfortunately, yeah, Hard Rock Zombies is a movie that I love, but it was a they it was one they picked up and distributed, and obviously they saw it and they're like, "This is this is totally what along lines with what we're doing. We need to put this out." This is this is it is is a mass uh, a massive list of uh, how prolific these guys were, and then and from watching, you know, I never knew the story obviously as a kid of these of these two cousins that you know they almost. The yin and yang. One's like the left mm. side of the brain. One's the right side. One's the money. One's the creative. And uh, mm. I mean, they just pumped out constant stuff. So I, I would imagine you couldn't watch all of it. <laughs> yeah. No. It's I. I originally this project it started out. I was going to do just my favorite fifty canon movies, and it was going to be one book. And as I as I learned more and more and found more and more movies, I had to keep expanding and expanding. And yeah, as it is, it's going to take three volumes just to cover the. Golden Globus produced ones that were released, at least released in the US or the UK. That was the other where I stretched it out because they also did so many productions out of their Tel Aviv studios, out of their Italian stu- studio. Mm. It's it's amazing how much they what their output was and what their catalog looked like at their at their peak. Yeah, it's it, like he would. I, I love that quote from Menahem where he was just like, I, I, I they were like, what would you do with a 17 million dollar budget? He's like, I, I don't know. He's like, uh, make 17 movies. He's like, you know, <laughs> he's like, I that's all I know how to do. I don't know how to make a movie for 17 million dollars. And he's just uh, man, everything I learned in the very beginning about being an action fan. Uh, I learned from like the canon guys like so I would watch and I'm like okay well you need the main guy you need him to have a relative that gets killed or a partner and then from there you know he takes revenge and like pretty much smokes everyone uh, and, and it's just it just like everything that I learned and, and I, 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 I reminisce and I think of, of of all those movies and yesterday. I watched one of my favorites which was Delta Force just to kind of get into yeah. the into the vibe of like the. The podcast today and it back then so like i was eight years old and 86 and like none of this stuff made sense to me i'm like why is this like you know like the the israel and palestine thing and first of all it took me till like two years ago to realize that was robert foster i don't know how i never (laughs) did i'm like how is this you know the dude from uh jackie brown um so i would imagine you cover uh delta force in the upcoming book right so like Speak away on on oh, Delta Force, man. One of your favorites too. Yeah, Delta Force is wild. It's a, and it's a crazy story. The production behind that one because it was originally written for Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson. Um, Bronson ended up passing on it, and they replaced him with 
Lee Marvin, but the original idea for it was going to be your very, very uh, traditional action movie. It was going to be more of the stuff you see, I guess, in the second half with infiltration and all the uh, fancy motorcycle and rocket launchers and saving the hostages. But then a TWA flight got hijacked and this was in the news. And so they flew over, they shot it in Israel. But while that was happening, Menachem had brought the screenwriter James Bruner with him to keep rewriting it and basing it on this hijacking that was still playing out over in the airport in Lebanon. And they kept waiting because obviously the first half of the movie is all of that stuff. And that's yeah. almost taken almost taken page for page from stuff that really happened. A lot of these characters are based on real people. And they kept waiting to find out how this was going to end. At one point, Menachem wanted to send James Bruner to the airport so that he could watch. He's like, he's like, I, I love this guy, right? <laughs> James Bruner is thinking, I'm this, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this guy from the Midwest. I'm going to be the only like white guy in this airport where there's an active hostage situation. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm so, but then the, what ended up happening is they were, they were hoping for this big, exciting ending. And in the end, the hostages were just released. So, Instead, they kind of went with this. Got to spice that up. Yeah. <laughs> Their own fantasy, crazy version of, of what happened there. And some of the stuff is funny. There's actually a, they had a, a guy who was actually, had worked with the Delta Force um, as a consultant on the film. And he ended up walking off the set after a certain point because he thought Menachem wasn't taking it seriously with the, of course, like the rocket launching motorcycle. And I mean, that is my favorite because like, <laughs> so like just the logistics of that is so ridiculous where it's like, how do you even name that thing? <laughs> just yeah. like, it's like, yeah, whatever we're, we're going to get it. But I love it's I badass. Love, I know. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you know, walk away, set a bomb <laughs> off behind you and I'm, out. I'm, I'm going to need a motorcycle and it's going to be a rocket launcher. Uh, but as a kid, like, I just loved – so I loved the more bad guys, the better. When I would watch, like, the old Batman shows, if there was two goons, I'd be like, yeah, that kind of sucks. But when they had ten, I'm like, cool. <laughs> They're going to – like, the more people – and I think it started just, like, uh, I would watch, like, Commando. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know? Like, mm -hmm. you see Commando, and I'm thinking, like, this dude – like, the, the kill count on Commando from, like, Schwarzenegger – he must have killed at least 300 people in this movie. <laughs> and uh, to me, like, that's what I, I liked. I liked, you know, the it, it was really not about plot. And as you get older, obviously, you know, you attach yourself to certain movies. But as a kid, it's like they're, they're the 80s just made it. So you as long as you had that name, you could do whatever you want, you know, and later on Cobra mm -hmm. and all these other things. So but you mentioned uh, Bruno, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, can you explain to me, because I never really understood the story behind Missing in Action and why it's so, like, weird. Um, like, it's just, so it's like the first movie and then the second movie is the beginning. Like, just break that down for me. Yeah, so what happened was James Burner had been working with Chuck Norris. They had worked together on previous projects. They had met because uh, Bruner's, uh, his, I believe his stepdaughter, his, his wife at the time knew worked in one of, didn't work there, but went to one of Chuck Norris's studios and they had connected that way. And so they'd been working on projects together. Usually Chuck would come with an idea and they sort of spitballed back and forth and Bruner would write it. 
And missing in action is was Chuck had wanted to do something about Vietnam. He had lost a, his brother in Vietnam. And the I missing in action. Never knew yeah. that. Yeah, that's crazy. The, yeah, the missing in action script is what came of it. And so Chuck took us all over. This was his his kind of push because he didn't want to get stuck doing just martial arts movies, which is kind of what he'd been doing. This one, he still kicks guys. He has a great fight. I mean, he's, he has some great fights in it, but he gets to use guns. It turns into sort of a more well-rounded action hero. Yeah, yeah. And Chuck, Chuck took it all around Hollywood and nobody really wanted it. And finally he got this meeting with Cannon and Cannon brought him in. And what he found out was that they had read a script with missing in action and wanted to put him in it, but it wasn't the one he submitted to them. It was another film called Missing in Action that producer Lance Hole, who directed Missing in Action 2, had sent to the company. So they made him read the script right there when he was in the office and say yes or no whether he was going to do it. It was one of those type of, you know, we want to get this into production immediately. And so Bruner's waiting at home to see how this meeting goes. Chuck gets out of the meeting and calls him. He says, I got good news and bad news. The good news is that I want to make, they, the Canon wants to make a movie called Missing, they're going to make a Missing in Action movie. The bad news is that it's not your script. It's somebody else's, but they're going to buy your script. And so you're not just, so you get some payments. Okay, yeah. So mm. they're going to buy a script. That's funny. So then- I would you, at that point would you even want to sell it or hold I mean I guess it's kind of like the same movie but yeah well he did so missing in action two they went and shot it and they were putting it together and they were so excited with the footage they were seeing it's missing action two the one that eventually became that but at the time it was just called missing in action and so they get down there and they say they want to make a sequel they want to make a sequel as fast as possible they want to shoot it immediately and so can James come down and start writing it so he went down where they were shooting it and basically reworked his script that he had originally submitted to them, but changed the character's name so it matched um, and sort of made it into a sequel of the original film they made. Canon gets back. They they shot these two films. They submit the first one, Missing Action 2. <laughs> the numbers get so confusing trying to tell yeah. the story. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. submit Matt Missing in Action 2 to... Uh, Warner Brothers for theatrical distribution. Warner Brothers says, mm, "No, no, this is this is this isn't like the the same level of the action movies we're making. We don't want it." Mm-hmm. So Canon realizes they have to distribute themselves. They watch the two movies and realize that the second one they made from the Bruner script, the second one they shot, is the much better film. So now that they're already out of their their deal with uh, Warner Brothers for the missing action. They released the first one and it's a hit. It's it's a it's a huge hit. They just flipped the order and they, it was it, it ended up working out for them because yeah, no, for sure, because it, <laughs> it was it was one of those movies that everyone knew, like everyone knew missing in action, you mm-hmm. know, and and uh, you see like Chuck Norris and <laughs> cover with his like huge machine gun. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, they ended up getting two sequels out of it. I know Braddock was kind of like a, a bomb for sure. But um, people definitely recall missing in action. But like always, like I, I would, you know, it, as I was younger, you'd watch missing in action, then missing in action, the beginning, and then Braddock, and like at a certain point, they like all mixed together. But I love Chuck, man, I, and I would watch these movies. And just recently, I watched the movie of his that I've never seen, but it was only because Tarantino mentioned it on Joe Rogan, Silent mm-hmm. Rage. 
Okay, that's an early one. Yeah, so like, it, you know, because Tarantino was on Joe Rogan and he's just like, yeah, he's like, I really love Silent Rage because it's like Chuck Norris versus Michael Myers. <laughs> and I was like, and then I'm flipping through Tubi and it was on and I watched it. Did you, wa did you watch that one? It's been a long time, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like it. this thing. He's just, it, it is kind of like a, a weird like slasher-ish type thing. <laughs> But like someone who can't be killed, like the way we consider, mm -hmm. I, I consider Terminator, the first Terminator to be a slasher. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it's there's no difference. It's like, Mike, you can't kill Michael Myers. You can't kill the Terminator or this fucking guy. So I, I do love about Canon too. Uh, you know, talking about Chuck Norris at one point, but uh, they had it was almost like those old studio systems you hear about. They had these thought like stable of action. You know, the Dudikoff, Chuck Norris, um, oh, the pile. And, one of my favorites, you know, uh, Charles Bronson. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was interesting how they, they, when they went and they bought the rights from, uh, for death wish Two, correct. From, yeah, uh, right. you know, De Laurentiis yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. and then hitched their wagon to that and wrote it right into, you know, part two, but <laughs> yeah. part three is one of my favorite, like another over the top, like they go from like, you know, he's just a vigilante doing whatever. And then part two, they just step it up a notch with like, it's like so violent and there's so mm -hmm. much rape in it. <laughs> like it's insane. They put the cannon touch on it. And uh, if you could talk a little bit about the death wish uh, uh, film. Yeah. All that. five of them. Like, yeah. are, like they're so different. Like one and two, like I didn't, I really didn't even like two, but three, four and five I was in, but go ahead. Yeah. Five, five is even if you don't love five Bronson's getting, getting pretty old at that point. But he has the the remote control soccer ball bomb, which is one of my favorite <laughs> Death Wish kills. Yeah, three is three is a wild ride because yeah, the, the you have this whole thing where it's almost like Paul Kersey as like Macaulay Culkin's character in Home Alone, where he's building the traps <laughs> and the the two by fours that knock out the the crook's teeth. And he starts with a pistol, and he's by the end he's got an old like Gatling gun practically <laughs> with somebody holding his band of bullets. It's insane. Like, yeah, all the ma the mail order weapons, which is oh yeah, it's 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 that's that's a nutty one. And then you get into the Death Wish Four, which is almost more of a gosh, the 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 old Kurosawa for formula where you've got the guys you're pinning the different gangsters against each other. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, it's I I think you can learn a lot about somebody, or it reveals a lot about somebody if you find out what their favorite Death Wish is. I think that's always because. <laughs> As any of the any of them are acceptable, and everyone everyone has reasons for loving the one I the ones they love. I I am I I like four. Three is three is the craziest, but four is because because we get John P. Ryan in it, who's one of those fantastic classic like '80s bad guy actors. And yeah, but Death Wish and it, Charles is, Bronson with go ahead. I was going to say which is the one with the. Um um is four with uh danny trejo with that 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 infamous doll, uh dummy by now yeah <laughs> yep 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 the the very obvious dummy there's there's some great classic stuff between the dummy in um in death wish four and the michael dudikoff stunt double who <laughs> is very obvious in american ninja 2 because it's oh, a very long yeah. like long shot where it's clear to everybody you're not fooling anyone that that's not michael dudikoff right there yeah 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 and also, here's another one. Um, Brian and I never watched The Avenging Force, uh, but when we were going to talk to Sam, we both ended up watching it. Uh, speaking of John P. Ryan, um, mm -hmm. and that movie was very 
Like, I was not <laughs> expecting that. That was like a that might be his best movie, I think. Mm. It's like pretty brutal. And I like um I always say this, you know, if you're willing to kill a kid in a movie, I respect it because no one does that. And, you know, <laughs> it makes you feel some shit because no one wants to see that. And uh, yeah, so the story behind that, uh, I don't know. You probably covered in the in the new book, right? Mm -hmm. so it's like a, it was like a Invasion USA sequel or something like that, right? Yeah, it was meant to be a Invasion USA sequel. And I honestly don't know uh, if... If James Booth, who had written it, he gets to play, um, I believe he's Michael Dudikoff's boss in that, but he's also a villain in the American Ninja 4, and uh, he's the villain in Pray for Death, which is a non-canon, but yeah, a yeah, great yeah. ninja movie. Shokasugi. But he wrote the script, and I don't I don't believe he actually wrote that specifically to be a Invasion USA sequel. I think it's something he wrote and then changed the character's name to Matt Hunter because it's so disconnected from... So disconnected. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah... Um, Chuck didn't want to do it. He ended up doing Delta Force uh, instead, which is, um, which I'm happy for. Mm -hmm. But we ended up getting Michael Dudikoff in it. And yeah, they still kind of kept it as a Invasion USA sequel, even though <laughs> it, you don't know how it connects at all other than the characters named yeah, that Hunter. Was, that was like the weirdest part too. And to me, um, I I'm going to say probably my favorite canon film is Invasion USA. Um, it's just Joe Zito. We wanted to, I'm like, yo, I wanted to find Joe Zito. I'm like, please, we got to talk to Joe Zito. Like the Prowler, Friday the 13th, four, uh, you know, Invasion USA. Like he, like, and then Furstenberg told us that he's in like, uh, Dubai writing some shit. <laughs> Invasion like USA is just the, the epitome of that 80s, like USA, USA, like mm -hmm. chanting kind of like. Perfect extra. storm. Yeah. Like the extra, like it, they, I feel like they took over, like everything about it looked like fucking real. Like it was just so ridiculous and uh, over the top. And he's like, yo, first of all, like Chuck Norris is like firing Uzis up in this mall. <laughs> like, I love it. It's so outrageous. Is, is that, would you say that's one of your favorites as well? It's, I always point to it as my favorite of the Chuck Norris, yeah. everything Chuck Norris and Cannon did together. That movie was wild. And you said, yeah, it looks real. And, you they because the production value they got i don't know if you were aware but the 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 little uh suburban cul-de-sac they blow up that <laughs> i love that scene the christmas time that yeah month yeah. oh my god it's insane that was a real that was a real little suburban neighborhood they had to, they had been slated demolished everyone that they got the the city came and in atlanta and bought up like all the gave everybody money for their houses and had to move because they were expanding the Atlanta airport. And so all these houses were empty. Cannon came in and decorated them for Christmas. This, um, and, but yeah, <laughs> they, they gave them permission to blow it up. So you're actually seeing real homes that people were living in recently <laughs> getting explosive set in. And the same thing is with the mall that Chuck Norris is riding on the pickup truck through yeah. that one. That was a mall. That was a wing of one of the big uh, malls down in Atlanta that they were just gutting to renovate and they said oh sure you can do anything so canon because christmas decorations are the cheapest thing to buy in the middle of summer and to decorate with and definitely create a mood right they that's why they decorated the houses they decorated the mall and they just were able to trash the place so that was just some incredible luck they had with production value. and it was nice because bruner again he wrote that one he got to go 
on uh, location scouting with Zito for it. So anytime they found something like this, he could write the scene and the script around it, which was perfect. Us. He's, and he seems to be the common theme, you know, <laughs> definitely. I know you had him, uh, you interviewed him on your first book, right? Yes. Yes. And I, he actually wrote the foreword for the second one. So he just oh. has a great story of uh, some great stories about Menachem in there. There's, he tells stories about um, originally Michael Winner after Death Wish 3 was going to make Delta Force 2 for canon. Mm. And so he has stories about going out to you know, uh, Michael Winner's mansion out in London and working with on him with a working with him on a death wish and a delta force two script that never ended up happening but yeah james bruner is amazing and he's he did some <laughs> some great stuff for canon they 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 would always they trusted him and they would come back to him even even for rewrites there were movies that they had for example pow the escape if you've seen that one with david carradine no no it's basically it's basically missing action with David Parody and so Chuck Norris. They're just making another one, but they got back and they put the movie together. And it, Ben Ockham wasn't happy with it. Cannon wasn't happy with it. So they had James Bruner come in and they said, "Okay, we have like these three actors and like these two locations that we still have access to, and like two days of shooting. Can you write us scenes for eat for just using that stuff in that little time that'll make this movie make sense?" And so that's the kind of stuff he he did for them, which is that's really awesome. yeah. yeah he's he talented. He's, yeah, talented. He's a fixer, and <laughs> a guy like that you want around. It's like okay, it's like we have you know, especially the way it appears that that Canon ran. It was just very impulsive, very much like oh, what's the script? Okay, let's do it. You know, let's shake hands, and I need you in production in two weeks, and you have five weeks to do it. And also, Canon's way of you know re reflecting like. When break dancing was popping, pop, pop. Mm -hmm. got to get a movie out about it, you know, and then we got to get a second one out, you know, as soon as possible, you know, but we've talked yeah. a lot of action, but I mean, they, there's so much different stuff in canon besides yeah. action and horror. And they did a lot of music stuff from, you know, breaking was a success, obviously breaking <laughs> two was a huge movie from my childhood, but also the, Colossal musical failure of the Apple. The Apple. The Apple's I on Paramount. I, I wasn't Plus. able to sit through all of it. Me I neither. <laughs> I tried to. The Apple's up on Paramount Plus now, uh, and you covered in your first book. Um, what a weird. Um, I mean, shit. Even the dude singing in the beginning was kind of flat. <laughs> like it wasn't <laughs> like he wasn't really that good of a singer and stuff. So I mean, it, it, anything you want to say about the Apple? Just uh, can you even explain the plot to me? I can't. I, I have no oh, idea. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the Apple the Apple's very special. That's a Menachem Golan. His his first movie he directed, I mean, he directed a lot of films in Israel and some very acclaimed ones. Um it what's what's crazy to think about canon is before these guys came and became associated purely with these B movies and like this action horror schlock, they were the most respected filmmakers in their industry. And they had really put uh, Israeli cinema helped it get out there to international audiences. And it's, 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 it's wild, but yeah, canon was their way of infiltrating the U S market of trying to get in. Um, the Apple was so it is a biblical sci-fi dystopian disco musical. Yeah. I think the easiest way, it's the only one that I, you can describe that way. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's basically, basically uh, it's portraying like the music business as, as 
hell and like your deals you have to make deals with the devil it's very over the top and very obvious with its imagery mm-hmm. but Menachem thought this was going to be the next Saturday Night Fever. He was he was sure this was going to be their big hit. And this was really right after they took over Canon. They, they put out some smaller films, but this is the first big one that they were going to give a push. They actually released the soundtrack. They kept the rights of the soundtrack themselves, started Canon Records, which only put out a few releases in the early 80s. Wow. Because they were sure the soundtrack was going to put up Saturday Night Fever numbers, that this would fuel movies forever. Well, they screened the movie... And uh, I believe it's in Toronto at the film festival, but the audience is booing the whole time. They handed out the records to everyone who came in to get to take the soundtrack home for the screening. And they were allegedly throwing them like Frisbees at the screen during the screening. So yeah, Menachem's up in his hotel room. And the way the story goes is the way that he told it over and over again was ready to jump off his balcony and throw himself off the balcony and Yoram had to talk him down. So thank goodness he did because that's, (laughs) no, you're right. We got hundreds of movies, but yeah, the apple is wild. I think everybody should see the apple at least once. And it's usually one of those ones that people end up seeing again after they've seen it the first time, because it's just, it's so weird. It's it's, so good. Weird. it's good as a group. Like when you watch The Room. Like when I first watched The Room, um, I watched it by myself, and I was like, "Oh, this isn't fun by myself." Like I'm like <laughs> watching this movie that's really bad. But I, I mean, The Apple is obviously just a, a better production. Um, but I, I couldn't make it all the way through. But it just, <laughs> I, I love, it's tough. I love passion so the fact that he had that passion for it and he thinks it's gonna you know because when we make shit like uh you know like i play in a band so whenever we make something we feel like it's uh, when you put it out there you're like oh this this is the best thing that i've ever done Mm -hmm. and you know once it gets received like that it kind of reminded me whenever i would hear stories um when i watched that troll 2 documentary and like the, oh, the, the, best worst movie best worst yeah. movie yeah so that yeah. dude's watching it with the audience and he's confused as to why people think it like he thought people loved it that's why it was like a cult thing so uh very funny for sure mm-hmm. um you, you know in your first book you got a chance to talk to uh kane kasuki that's pretty cool that was exciting. That was very exciting. And it was a, at a weird hour because he was in Japan at the time working on something. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, he he was great. And he told some stories that I, I love just him talking about working in his one of his dad's studios and at Halloween, everyone would come in to buy the ninja costumes of Shizuku. I did as a kid. <laughs> I, I completely did. Like that was a, the last time I ever dressed up for Halloween. I was a ninja. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal. It was a big fucking deal for like two years around here. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean that's that's thanks to Canon. They really That was back in the day when you could order Chinese stars out of the back of Soldier of Fortune <laughs> magazine, have them ship right to your house. Right. Bunch of eight, ten year olds throwing metal stars against the yeah. yeah. yeah the, 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 they came in the whole kit too. Yeah. You, could, you could buy that had the blow dart uh Gun and <laughs> the awesome. belt buckle that had the ninja star on it which is yeah. i wish i i gotta find one of those today because i would love the the belt buckle that it with the removal throwing star <laughs> could be handy i know yeah I, but yeah i tried to get show but i ended up getting a note back from him and it was the most ninja 
like response. It was <laughs> upon reflection I or upon meditation. I do not think this is the time in my life to reflect upon those years. It was very. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. Was, yeah. So if I'm going to get rejected, at least it was in the way that like I could have <laughs> hoped for because it yeah, was so yeah. cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Part of me is just thinking he's like on the couch with, uh, you know, his Al Bundy hand down his pants, just like doing it on his iPhone, being like, I'm not doing this shit. <laughs> right. Because you know? at this point, like, you know, like he's like an older dude and he's just like, but we remember show like to me. I, I, I mentioned this, but before Schwarzenegger, they were show Kazuki and everything mm-hmm. he did after I wanted to watch. So once those ninja movies ended. I, I went for Pray for Death, uh, Nine Deaths of the Ninja. Like anything I saw his name on, I would go to the video store and I would rent and I would love. And uh, yeah, man, he 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 was a very big deal, you know, especially for someone, you know, making these low budget movies. But like all everyone my age grew up and some of us wrote canon movies about it, <laughs> canon books mm-hmm. like you. Um, another movie I really wanted to talk about, which was fucking huge for me. Uh, was Exterminator 2. Did you love that movie? Exterminator 2 is another one with a crazy story behind it. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's... I saw that in the theaters. Wow, yeah, that 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 had been great. That was one that... The, the whole thing was shot. Um, they had Ginty there. They had uh, Faison there. And they, they filmed the whole thing. And Cannon got it back. And they weren't... They weren't happy with it. They, it was too short. Certain things they wanted more action. So you had they brought in William Sachs, who was a famous fixer of films. Okay, yeah, you had him in for the first book. Yeah, yeah, and he um, he ended up directing a, a a sex comedy for that I cover in the second one that we talked about talk about in there. But yeah, so they brought him in and they said, "Hey, can you fix this?" The issue is like Ginty is off shooting something else. We don't have him. We don't have. I'm forgetting the name of the main actress, but we don't have her right now. And, oh, you can't shoot in New York because we've cleared out all those production offices. We're shooting something else there. You have to shoot in L.A., which New York and L.A. aren't exactly interchangeable. No. And so they, did, and they didn't even have the garbage truck, which is a pivotal part of that, that movie. So it's amazing how he finally figured out. He got them, he got them to take one concession and to drive the drive one of the new york garbage trucks out to la so that was somebody actually had to do that and i'm sure that cost a a, a ton in gas in the 80s yeah, are you kidding me Absolutely. <laughs> but that was where the budget went so this, bill Sachs went through all the footage and all the outtakes and he found the outtakes where uh robert ginty is working on this this truck and he's putting on the mask and takes he takes it off or it's, it's the end of the take. So he takes off the mask and he's like sweaty. And apparently Ginty hated wearing that welding mask. And it was only for the one scene. And Bill thought, hmm, if I take this short little chunk of film, we reverse it. We could have him putting on the mask. And so that's all the Ginty we need to finish this movie. Because anybody can be wearing that mask at that yeah, point. Yeah. So then he went and shot all the stuff with the flamethrower, with a stunt double, just purely just there was no Robert Ginty at all in any of those scenes. And those are all the action scenes that people remember all the burning people in the warehouse <clears> at the end. That was uh, for a while. That was the most, the most stunt men burning at once. <laughs> yeah, it was in a that, film. That ending is, you know, and that's what I remember. It's like, there's always that scene or that part in these movies where it's like the, the good guy 
like either gets like a hundred guns that he's going to kill everyone with, or he has that garbage truck that he turns into like this, like, you know, kill machine with weapons that make no sense. Like, it's just like, it's like, I'm going to put this gun on a swivel and everyone's going to die. <laughs> but I love, you know, it's just, I loved it. Mario Van Peoples. I just mm-hmm. remember, you know, I we love, I know Brian as well, we love sleazy 80s New York movies, you know, because it just reminds me of that time. And, and I just remember Exterminator 2 being one of my favorites. I watched it probably within the last few years, and it's just, it's such a grimy, gross movie. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you one funny part, I've never seen Exterminator 1. <laughs> Never seen. I don't think it. you need to. I don't think I yeah. need to, right? I know, not, not you're right. Like yeah. Steve James was in it. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that, that that was cool. And and uh, another movie that I know that you like, uh, Ten to Midnight, is my favorite Bronson mm. movie. Oh um, yeah, it's so good. That movie, we had that movie on VHS, and I probably watched it at, at probably I don't know seven or some shit, <laughs> mm. you know. But it, it's. It's a really, it's one of those movies. It's a really good Bronson movie. Like it's mm-hmm. a legitimately yeah. great Bronson movie. So, um, give me something. Yeah, on that. that's I, well, that was one I almost mentioned earlier when you're talking about movies that you can we would classify as slashers that aren't yes, necessary. That absolutely. one because the, the whole ending it looks like a it's it's a slasher movie until the until yeah the very end when Bronson finally comes back into it. And it's really well done and scary, but yeah, that's a that's a fantastic one. Again, it's like Invasion USA is my favorite of Chuck's movies with Canon. Ten to Midnight's my favorite of Bronson, Bronson mm-hmm. and Canon working together. But yeah, it just had a lot going for it. Um, I think the soundtrack's great, J. Lee Thompson. Um, God, now I'm I'm bugging myself because I can't remember the name of the the actor Gene something I believe who plays the main villain, but he's slimy and gross and evil as as all can be and naked and that and naked yeah they actually they, <laughs> they shot ma- that make it even sh- worse they shot all those scenes twice which is incredible because they wanted a tv print so i i've never seen it on a blu-ray and i'm sure it's out there in a cut somewhere somebody has a vhs tape who taped it off of the movie channel or something back in the day but there's an underwear cut of the film okay. where oh, where he I is wearing that. Yeah, he's wearing underwear in all those scenes. So they, because they would shoot it once naked and they would have him shoot it again with underwear on just so they would have something to sell to television. It's like, so. it's like the radio edit, you know, <laughs> like you, you, you gotta, you gotta cut exactly. it. So, but yeah, and, yeah. and I love the very ending of that movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, fuck you. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's building up and, and it's like, you know, the, 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 the villain is telling Bronson that I'm sick and, and I'll come back and all this other shit. And one thing about Bronson, for some reason, not maybe not in Death Wish three, but like he always had this like little gun. It was always like a little revolver, <laughs> like it was just this tiny little fucking gun, and he had it. And maybe that was like that was like the 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 gun the cops carried back then. But it was just this <laughs> little teeny tiny thing, and he fucking he fucking smoked that dude. He first mm-hmm. of all he shot into a group full of cops, which is crazy. No one even. <laughs> No one even flinched. No one said nothing. And the dude caught a bullet and, and the Chuck head. Chuck gets a pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Great one. yeah, it, it, but, you know, yeah, I was going to say. No, I was just going to touch on it because we talked some action. We talked the musical. And then also their forays into the comedy field. Um, but even though this film isn't purely, it's it's pretty deep, actually, for uh, 
the a teen sex comedy of the last American Virgin, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, here you have, you know, like it's a teen sex comedy, but they throw in the abortion scene and, and the hero does not, you know, get the girl. Like there's a lot of that. And, and mm-hmm. there's stuff made in the documentaries about their uh, transition from the Israeli film and to American sensibilities. And this was a sort of a remake of a film they had success with in Israel. Uh, yeah, they actually had made this uh, whole series of movies. I think there's maybe t- 10 total at this point of uh, Lemon Popsicle was yes. the name of the movie. And it was it was directed by the same director who did Last American Virgin, um, Boaz Davidson. And yeah, they, they had had success with it. They had a couple sequels already made and it was successful all over the world except for in the US. They couldn't mm. sell it. it. It was it's very, very similar. Like so many of the shots and scenes in Last American Virgin are taken exactly out of Lemon Popsicle, except that Lemon uh, Lemon Popsicle was set in the 50s and had all the 50s music. They updated it for when they made it in the US because that's right. what they thought why it would why it never came here. But Lemon Popsicle was very popular in Germany, in Japan, unexpectedly. But they they thought they could just make it again and have this success here. And one of the things I think them I mean them having the the soundtrack that they did mm-hmm. was incredible because you have U two on there, you have uh, Devo, all these these great eighties eighties rock and new wave acts. And something else that I think that really works like they they touch on real subjects. It is it that there's. The, the sex has consequences in it and things like that, mm-hmm. that make it real, but they actually use teenagers. And that was very uncommon in those movies until then people point at fast times, original high being one of the first ones to use actual young actors, but um, last American Virgin came out first and shot much earlier actually, because it sat on their shelves a long time. So both those movies really changed that. Cause after that, then you get a John Hughes where right. all of these movies have young teens, but before that you were teenagers were going to these movies and they'd see these, these films. And it was, it was always like, you know, 28, 29 year old actors playing high schoolers. And yeah, Lawrence uh, Monson, who's in that, I think he had to lie about his age to even be able to get the work papers. He had to get a fake ID to work on it, which is crazy, <laughs> Yeah, but they were all young. They were all super young. And that it was, yeah, it ended up being a great, great movie sure yeah, yeah, yeah. and the ending yeah the ending is is a doozy i think <laughs> americans <laughs> like their happy ending you know that's the mm-hmm. pro yeah that's why like and, whenever uh, whenever we get to a, a a bad ending like i was telling we had this discussion uh me and brian had it yesterday like canon for sure in a lot of movies like i just always got so used to like the good guy winning and then once I was like, I, I watched the movie Miracle Mile, which I always reference. And then that was like the first time I saw an ending where I was like, this is not a very happy ending. And even <laughs> They Live was like that for me, too, where I was just like, like I don't even know what just happened. And, and it was like devastating for me. And then as I got older, I'm like, oh, this is these are the endings that I like because you you just relate to it different. But um, I, I, I know that you're you you're planning on doing a third book, which was um like scripts that never turned into movies, right? Yeah. So Canon very famously, I mean, they, they funded most of their movies through pre-sales. They would go and they would take a catalog or 
they would have mock mock-ups of posters folders and things like that they would send to buyers everywhere all over the country and that was where yoram was a genius yoram was really good with this and the people he that worked for him and they would have an idea and usually the idea 10 midnight's a, a classic example they had made death wish 2 and they knew they wanted to make another movie with um with bronson but they didn't know what the what the movie would be because canon canon was offered the evil that men do that was the next one he made but they wanted two hundred thousand dollars for the script or something and canon's like we pay that much for a script no no way so instead they they made the sort of like a handshake agreement that that bronson would appear in a canon movie and they came up with the title 10 to midnight there was no story you even uh if you look at some of the early ads it's a picture of a, like a, it's a it's a globe like the planet earth with charles bronson with a gun and it has a, a quote about international terrorists so good and it's nothing to do with what the movie yeah. finally was and they took it and they sold it and so they would you know they to sell it to italy they would sell it to germany japan all 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 over and once once enough people had bought a movie then they would figure out how to make it and oftentimes they were sort of making movies to fit posters or concepts they had pitched that they didn't hadn't really thought out 10 to midnight was one where they had a movie that was just kind of kind of fit the title still doesn't make sense it has nothing to do with the film but they were stuck with it but that was an example of they found another script that kind of fit fit what they wanted to do with them but yes yeah, so they had sold a bronson movie with no plot or premise or anything that made it but yeah, so Canon would do this and they would have catalogs and you'd go through these catalogs and they're this thick and half of the movies, a third of the movies would be ones that is just them throwing ideas out there and seeing what sticks. And for example, I mean, even famously, I, I talked about it on another podcast recently specifically about this, but they had done a 60 page spread at, 19, at Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival in 1986, announcing 60 movies that they were going to make in 1986 and 1987, which is crazy because even if you're a major studio yeah if you make 15 movies in that time you're people consider you going too busy this is canon wanting to put a new movie into theaters almost every week mm. which during the math if they had succeeded there they would be competing with themselves they would with having multiple new movies yeah. in theaters on weekends because there's only 52 weeks in the year <laughs> but yeah they'd never bother to do the math and then again most of those movies there were there weren't really ideas in place they were just mocked up posters that somebody had drawn sometimes a star attached sometimes not sometimes directors and so on and so forth but yeah from that 60 there were at least even 20 in that that never went anywhere mm. which is crazy but yeah so at this point because i've been working on this for years and years i have lots of these catalogs and newspaper ads i've found i i have materials for my count, I think, is at 105 canon movies that they announced but never made. And that's the last section of the last the last book, the third one, will cover 1988 onward. And there are some good ones in there. You get um, canon movies like, well, you get Bloodsport and Cyborg when Van Damme finally comes in. Pretty, you have pretty big for them too. Like, yeah, it was like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, Bloodsport ended up being a hit, but it just unfortunately came too late. And what's a bummer is they sat on it for a while. That was a movie that they thought was unreleasable, which is crazy because. <laughs> well, the it just seems they would just get ahead of themselves and just like I mean, watching that the the Google Boys doc, I can't remember the, mm -hmm. um, how they kind of 
you know, they should have pumped the brakes a little bit, you know, before going into like Superman. I can't remember who was speaking on it, but before they went into Superman four and things like that. But the bleeding. So it was like, yeah. I think it started with yeah. over the top. Yes. Like over the top. Cause you're, you're like, it's funny, you know, watching that movie, which I recently did because I saw it on prime and, uh, <laughs> You want to talk about a movie that did a lot for arm wrestling, like you know the, they they mm-hmm. did for ninjas. They're like arm wrestling. Let's do it. Uh, Maybe the only. I think it's the only <laughs> arm wrestling movie ever made, right? It's gotta but be. like me and my cousins would arm wrestle because of this movie, and we mm-hmm. all tried to do the over the top move. Uh, but I think. But did you arm wrestle for the custody of your child, or like what? <laughs> no, you know, thank- did you get stakes that high? Thank God, no, thank God. But great soundtrack and rewatching it, there's still some charm to the movie. It's ridiculous, but they got all these like big dudes that look like they're ready to beat each other up, but all they're doing is arm wrestling, which is funny. But I think <laughs> so from there, you know, the bleeding started because that was kind of like a bomb because it came out around the same time mm-hmm. as Cobra. And they paid Stallone's what, 10 million, was it? Or 12, was it? Well, 12 million. 12 million. 12, yeah, Highest yeah, yeah. paid actor in history at that point. And I always love when they were like, you know, you can't get Stallone. He's got 7 million. And he's like, I'm not going to pay him 7 million. And then I you know. figure you go to eight, maybe, as <laughs> no. your first offer. Let's go to 12. Yeah. It's like, 12, all right, fine, you know? And he did it because he's thinking, like, fuck it. Even if this movie bombs, you know, it's whatever. I feel like that was, like, his first, like, you know, like, bomb for sure. But then what? Uh, Masters of the Universe and, and uh, Superman 4 were just like, man, I, I don't know about you, Austin, but, like, we grew up, like, I grew up loving Masters of the Universe and mm-hmm. E-Man and, and, like, the toys and that stuff. Sure. And when that movie came out, I was like, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> hey, where's Battle Cat? Where's Orko? <laughs> you know, uh, but these movies are all every movie I've mentioned is like uh, Masters of the Universe is up on Showtime. Uh, mm-hmm. Then Superman mm-hmm. for like all these movies I recently watched uh, because I, I don't know. They're there. And I, I it, they live it, again. HBO Max, you know, and. And I, I just look at them differently now. You know, you, you still like Superman four had the best intentions. I thought, I thought it really did. And, and, mm-hmm. and in comparison to like two, it, this the special effects were kind of like, obviously way less than, but not by much, mm-hmm. you know, like they're, they're still kind of like, you know, very primitive and stuff. So what, what did you think of like uh, the Superman, you know, three into four, did you like three or four? I, I I think you're right. I think four had very good intentions. The they had actually the they DC Comics had published a comic book based on the original script. Uh, they had the novelization is based on the original script. So you can sort of get an idea of what this movie might have looked like had they not cut the budget by such a drastic amount. Um, I think four would have been better than three, at least in my opinion, if they had had the money that they had needed to actually make it, but they had had to tear and pay tire pages of the script out. Obviously the special effects took a huge hit because the people that they were going to bring back from the prior movies all quit once they heard the budget was being cut. Um, I think four would have been, yeah, much better, but it was one of these ones that, yeah, they hit Canon at a real, it was being made at a really bad time where they had to pull the money. Mm-hmm. That's the same with master's universe. Master's universe is one that there would have been much more to it had Canon not been, standing there waiting to actually pull the plug on on the shoot before before it was really finished um canon did something they pumping the brakes was a big thing the other 
big mistake that they made was right in 1986, they bought uh, Thorny MI and Elstree Studios, which is a big giant production facility in the UK. They had had this line of credit that was something like $300 million. Wow. That was extended to them because, like I said, like you had Missing in Action, you had uh, Break In and all these movies yeah, that were low budget. Yeah, yeah low budget movies that they were turning a profit on. And up until that point, really they, these movies would come out and there's not like much, but they were always making money on them because they made the money from selling them, the video rights, cable rights, international rights. They always spent less on the movies than they had already made <laughs> before, before sending them into production. But then Canon started making these bigger and bigger films, which was not what they were really, that wasn't what they were good at. And so with $300 million, you, you had that great Menachem quote earlier, they could have made, you know, endless $5 million Chuck Norris and Michael Dudikoff movies, and these would have done well, and they would have survived a long time. They took that $300 million, and instead of spending it on the movies that they should have, the budgets of the movies that they'd already sold, they bought Elstree Studios, which is where Rares of the Lost Ark was filmed, Empire Strikes Back, The Shining. And if you're a company that is very good at making $5 million Chuck Norris movies in the Philippines, what do you need with the studios where they shot Empire Strikes Back? And <laughs> it's, it's crazy because after, after, after they bought it, they were only able to shoot two movies there. And that was Superman 4 and a very small action food movie another one with robert ginty three kinds of heats and it's just nuts because then they had to sell that because they were out of money they didn't have money they could have spent that money but on superman 4 and they didn't have it anymore because they blew it on real estate and it's just yeah besides the, getting too big working too fast and then some very very unwise investments are really did them in all at once. This all came to a head right in late 86, early 87, and things looked very dire all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's just, it, it's amazing. Like you said, if they just stuck to what they were good at, they could have done all this stuff. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, I, I love the fact that uh, Joe Zito was going to do uh, the Spider-Man movie because mm -hmm. uh, to me, you know, Michael Dudikoff, he, I mean, just to like he was kind of like a star, you know, like he was just like completely um, someone who is that AC? Is that your AC? That's mine. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You want to just cut it for a minute? It's going to take a while to wind down. But... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just, 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 just mute yourself for a minute. Um, oh yeah. So anyway, I mean, we're going to wrap up here anyway, but just, I, I, I always thought he was like, like a star and i i just feel like he never really got like a um uh, a proper shake you know because that, mm -hmm. everything that he like he could have done just done that i mean i don't know how good the superman movie would have been but if joe zito was behind it um the fact that he did invasion usa and it was such a big production you know like I, it's such a bummer you know that he didn't mm -hmm. get a chance to so yeah michael dudikoff uh, an actor that i love i think he's great and everything I've seen of him, especially like, I love so many of his Canon things, but the problem with his, him and Canon is Canon was going broke. They were there. Their productions were getting smaller and smaller as his name was getting bigger and bigger. And any, 
any proper studio at that point would have just continued to showcase them in bigger and bigger and better things. And instead, you have American Ninja, you have Avenging Force, and but then the movie's getting these smaller and smaller budgets. Yeah. Just it's just unfortunate because yeah, he I think he's fantastic and I think he should have been an even bigger star. But he did he did do very good. He had a you know, he made a lot of movies continued through the nineties. He had a TV show yeah, yeah, yeah. called Cobra that was no for sure. Was 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 a lot of fun. So yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I believe me. I mean, he seems pretty yeah. happy on on the on the IG for sure. So good for mm-hmm. him. But uh, man, we would love to have you back whenever um the second or third book drops, whatever you want to do. Because I I want to talk about Hellbound and how <laughs> unbelievable that movie is. That I just recently watched that, and uh, that is one of the most ridiculous movies I've ever seen in my life. So yeah. But um, I would love to come back. Thank you. Yeah, man. We're, we're just hanging. We're just going to talk, you know, canon and action movies. And uh, last question, aside from canon, wh- what else would you like, like five years from now, what's another book or idea you would love to tackle? Oh, man. So, yeah, I think about that a lot. I have a few ideas for things that I, I've got a few more years of canon ahead, but for I'll sure. be definitely I'll be happy to to write about something besides canon afterwards and i don't i mean i don't know if you guys are fans of mystery science theater 3000 yeah for sure there's an idea i mean so many of the movies i know at least this changed now but 10 years ago you would look at the imdb bottom the worst movies of all time and it would all be shows that were featured movies that were featured on that because before streaming that was the only time like opportunity for a while for people to see movies like hobgoblins and werewolf and stuff that it was so they they created this canon of movies that are considered bad movies but people know them now and they kind of give them this exposure and so one idea i'm kind of playing with is writing about something that would be basically similar to this not as much about the the history of the show but about the movies that appeared on it because people know the mystery science theater movies as a body of work or uh, not a body of work but as a I'm I'm struggling for words, but this as as like a collection of of movies. So look into a lot of how how a lot of these were made. Oh yeah, talk yeah. to some of the people who for sure similar to this. Talk to the people who made them. Some people were thrilled that their stuff appeared on Mystery Science Theater 2000 because people saw it. Yeah, um, that way, and it's a similar approach to what I've done with Canon, but with with those movies that were those featured movies, on yeah. there. Yeah. So that's that's something I. Wow, I would, your, your, be your, fun. your wife is gonna love watching those with you <laughs> yeah yeah she's she's watched a lot of them with me over the years so. i bet i bet uh awesome yo thank you so much for doing it thank you for your time um man let's do it again awesome thank you would love to cool later buddy